like for you to look at the quote on the screen and think about it for a moment. There is more hunger for love and appreciation in this world than for bread. How many of you have already received a hug from someone this morning? Good. Everybody needs a hug. How many of you have already had someone say something encouraging, complimentary to you this morning? Uh, Not as many as were hugged. It just makes us feel good when someone says something nice to us, right? When they affirm us, when they compliment us, when they brag on us. And uh, the truth is that a lot of us struggle to say a lot of nice things to people. We, we, we just struggle to put it into words and to compliment people. Some are more negative than others. And, and, uh, and even when we try, we, we, we sometimes stumble. There was a lady at a church in Florida not long ago, went up to her pastor after the service, and uh, she said, said to him, oh, oh, pastor, I just have to tell you that every, every sermon you preach is better than the next one. Now think about that. Yeah, better. <laughs> Diminishing returns. <laughs> better than the next one. <laughs> D- do you think Jesus had any trouble saying nice things to people? Because sometimes being in church on our lives, we focus on some of the strong sayings of Jesus to the exclusion of some of the other things he said. And when you read the Gospels and you really pay attention, Jesus said some really nice things to people about them. He handed out compliments. And the the title of this sermon series, People Jesus Bragged On, that he, he said, you're doing really well at that, whom he held up as examples And we can learn from them. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, and I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 15 today, Matthew 15. We're going to look at some individuals, some better known than others, that Jesus bragged on. And what was that one thing about them that that Jesus highlighted? And what can we learn from that? Because does, does this make sense? If Jesus complimented someone for something, if Jesus bragged on someone for something, it's got to be a good quality. And therefore, it's a quality that that it would bless our lives to emulate, to to, to develop, to get better at, to have more of. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at these individuals and what it was that Jesus complimented them for, what he bragged on them about, and and ask God to help us build those things into our lives a little bit bit more. Now today, we're we're going to look at at a Gentile woman. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile and did not live in Jewish territory. And Jesus bragged on her and said she had great faith. In fact, when you read the Gospels, Jesus several times said that miracles happen because of people's faith, but there are only two times Jesus clearly bragged on someone's faith. Both of them were Gentiles. Do you think Jesus was trying to send a message to his disciples when he did that? One of them was a Roman soldier. 
I haven't seen faith in anyone in Israel like his faith, Jesus said. Great faith. This is a, this, this woman, we don't even know her name. And she was a Gentile. And Jesus said, she's an example of what it means to have great faith. So we're going to look at her life and learn some things that will, that will help us. So let's, let's read the story and then talk about it. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21. The story is also mentioned in Mark's gospel, and he gives some details we don't have in Matthew. But Matthew makes some, some key points that Mark doesn't. So we're going, to, we're going to focus on the Matthew story, okay? The Matthew account. <clears throat> verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. He's over in Phoenicia into Gentile territory. And we'll show you that on the map in a minute. And there was a Canaanite woman from that region who came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Verse 23. But Jesus did not answer her a word. He was silent. And his disciples came and implored him, implored Jesus saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, he's speaking to her now, not the disciples, and he says to her, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's encouraging, isn't it? But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit help us not just know this story but learn from it so our faith too can be great. Amen. All right, let me help you understand this story and then lift some lessons about faith from it. Jesus, as you know, ministered publicly for three years, almost all of it in Jewish territory, the southern area of Judea, the northern area of Galilee, and between those two, uh, Samaria. And Jesus has been up in the northern area of Galilee, and I won't bore you with too much on that map, but you see the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is so far south it's not even on that map, but I want to give you perspective. And he leaves the town of Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he travels over to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And I, I put Tyre in bigger letters up there so you can see where he's at. So he's over in that region next to the, next to the sea. It's Gentile territory. It's not Jewish territory. It's one of the few times he leaves the Jewish area. And he's met there by this woman. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. 
In ancient times, that whole region of the Middle East, Israel and all the other nations in it were referred to as Canaan. It's the land of Canaan. That's not just Israel. That's that whole area. It wasn't a name that was commonly used in Jesus' day, but it was an ancient name, and some still used it to refer to the people who were descendants of the original inhabitants of that coastal area. And therefore, she was a descendant of the people that in ancient times were enemies of the Jews, enemies of Israel. Descendants of the people that they fought when they conquered Canaan, the promised land. Mark tells us that she was a Gentile or a Greek, a Gentile who spoke Greek language and, and had Greek culture. And he also tells us that she was of the Syrophoenician race. Phoenicia is the, is the specific area along the coast of Tyre and all through there. And Syria was a political name that the Romans used when, when, because Rome ruled the world and that whole Middle East area was, was known as Syria. And so all of those different descriptions, one way or the other, are accurate in describing who this woman was. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Mark gives us some details that Matthew doesn't. He tells us that Jesus had left the Jewish territory and gone to that area to get away from the crowds for a rest break, if you will. He was encountering tremendous hostility among some of the Jewish leaders and others. And so he and his disciples, they, they leave and they go over there to get away. And Mark even tells us that this, this, this event happens in a house. And, and that he's in that house and he's hoping no one notices he's there. You ever gone somewhere and just hope nobody knows me? But he couldn't escape notoriety. He couldn't escape people's attention. Word gets out that he's in the house. And this woman comes. And she, it's not like she's just standing face to face with Jesus having a conversation in the beginning. There's people in the place. And she's shouting. It's like if you're in a crowded room and you're on the other side of the room. And, and she's calling out, you know, trying to get his attention. That's what's going on in verse 22. Across the room, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is cruelly possessed by a demon. This this was a woman who was hurting. She was in anguish. Parents feel powerless sometimes when children suffer in ways that they can't fix, right? Right? And so you you see her heart filled with all this sorrow and fear and hope and anguish. Her daughter, Mark says, little daughter. She was a, a young child. She wasn't a teenager. She was young. We don't know exactly how old, but she was young. And she was suffering. But this Gentile had heard about Jesus because the Gospels tell us from the very beginning of his public ministry, people traveled from Phoenicia. They traveled from Tyre and Sidon and would go over there and hear about Jesus. So she knew about him. And when she said, Lord, she wasn't just using a a nice term, sir, because she said, Lord, son of David, which was the messianic title. It's It's the title for the Messiah. She knew who he was. She got it. She understood it. And by the way, until you really know who Christ is, faith is it's not going to be much. Until you accept who he really is as God, creator, king, Lord, savior, friend, boss, all of it, your faith is not going to be great. 
You can't have a great faith if you diminish Jesus and make him less than he really is in your life. She knew who he was. And she wanted help for her little girl. Verse 23, Jesus didn't say a word. He heard her across the room. He didn't didn't say anything, just absolute silence. It's not the first time Jesus was silent. When Jesus was on trial before King Pilate and King Herod, both times, silent. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Silent. During the Jesus' trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, when Peter denied Jesus three times at the end of it, we're told Jesus was able to look through the opening and see Peter and their eyes met and he was just silent. He just looked at him. He didn't say anything. He just looked at him. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus wanting to know what he has to do to have eternal life and he doesn't like Jesus' answer and he turns and sadly walks away and the Bible tells us Jesus stood there sad and just looked at him, didn't say anything. And there were times Jesus looked at the crowds, the hurting masses, the lost and spiritually struggling people. And he just looked. He didn't say anything. The Gospels tell us Jesus was sitting in the temple courtyard one day and he watched. He didn't say anything. He just watched as people dropped their offering in those treasuries or those containers. You see, Jesus takes time to search our hearts, to know what's really going on inside each of us. Sometimes he's silent to help us work through whatever we have to work through to be clear about what's really going on in life. Giving us opportunities to search our own hearts and our own souls. In that same verse, the disciples come to him and say, Lord, send her away. Now, when you study both Gospels, it's possible they came and said, just send her away. Don't do anything. That's not likely because they'd never seen Jesus really do that. But Jesus, go ahead and heal her daughter and get her out of here because we're tired of listening. She won't be quiet. Go ahead and give her what she wants and get rid of her. So even if they were encouraging him to help her, they weren't showing any compassion. And she knows that. She hears them. She sees them. She hears them walk up to Jesus and say, Lord, send her away. Get rid of her. Send her away. She hears that. In verse 24, Jesus It's not speaking to the woman. He's speaking to his disciples who just said, send her away. And in verse 24, Jesus said to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that's a true statement. Jesus came into this world to die on the cross for everyone. He came to bring salvation to everyone, to save the world. 
But his method was to begin with Israel and to limit his earthly ministry to those three brief years confined 99% of the time within the, the boundaries of Israel among Jewish people. Preparing his first followers who were predominantly Jews to then do as he said, take the gospel to the whole world. And you remember in Genesis 12, God had said to Abraham when he founded Israel that he was going to bless the whole world through his descendants. That's what's happening in Christ. He's honoring that promise, preparing disciples who were Jews that became followers of Christ who would then go to the world. And by the way, even being in Gentile territory when this happens jesus is symbolically teaching his disciples and preparing them for their future ministry there's always more going on than you think at first glance but he's going to teach them a lesson that even though the method was he was going to come and spend those three years working predominantly with the jewish people his mission was for everyone and he had to get them out of their prejudices out of their regionalized, localized, narrow mindset if they were ever going to fulfill the mission to the world. And so he's got them in strange territory. He's got them in a Gentile town, in a Gentile house, healing a Gentile woman's daughter and saying, this Gentile woman has great faith. So yes, I'm fulfilling the promise and starting it with the Jews, but you've got to understand, it's a whole lot bigger than that. Verse 25, while Jesus and the disciples are having this conversation, this, this woman, she comes and she bows down. She, 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 she prostrates herself in a prone position in, in, in worship and submission to Jesus and says, Lord, help me. And then Jesus speaks to her for the first time and says, it's not right it's not proper to take the food intended for children and give it to the dogs is it some jews not all but some jews referred to gentiles as dogs worthless it's interesting though there's a there's a word that was used for because most jews didn't have household pets and there were wild packs of dogs that would just roam around and there was a word a common word that's used in scripture and in the greek language for dogs This is not that word. This is a very specific word referring to a very small house pet type dog. You ever seen somebody at a table who's got pets just drop a little crumb down to the pet? (laughs) Hmm. The food is cooked for the family. But the beloved pet gets some of the crumbs. God established his relationship, his covenant with Israel first. But you and I today, we have the blessing of enjoying the crumbs. Because the blessing has extended to us. And so Jesus says that to her, and I love her answer in verse 27. Yes, Lord. She she didn't argue with him. She said, you're right. 
But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She understood. And then Jesus in verse 28 bragged on her. Your faith is what? What's the word? Now that's not my word. That's the word Jesus spoke. Her faith was what? Her faith was what? How's your faith? If Jesus Christ today was to describe your faith, what would be in that bubble? If Jesus chose one word to describe your faith, what would that one word be? If on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 is absolutely no faith and 10 is her great faith, where on that continuum would your faith fall? Let's talk about great faith for a few moments. Great faith will always face challenges. And this woman, think about her, not only the sickness of her daughter and the suffering in her own heart and soul, but the silence of Jesus. Great faith will face the challenge of moments when you don't hear God talking to you. Great faith will face the challenge of God not giving you an answer on your timeline. Just being silent. Great faith will face the challenge of people around you not showing you any compassion and encouragement. The disciples send her away. No compassion. Great faith will face moments in life at church and other places where you just feel like nobody cares. What does your faith do in those moments? Great faith will face the challenge when God gives you an answer you didn't want or didn't expect or don't understand as when Jesus looked at this woman and said, it's not right to give food for the children to the dogs. What what do you do? What does your faith do when when the answer is, is something you didn't expect or didn't want or don't understand? Great faith will face challenges. But great faith, secondly, will not be defeated by any of those challenges. Great faith will exist in the face of them. Notice this woman, when all of this was happening, is there any evidence she got angry? Is there any evidence she became defensive? Any evidence she walked away? See, great faith is not defeated by the challenges that it faces. Third, great faith perseveres. It's got stick to It lasts. It hangs on. It doesn't quit. It doesn't give up. In fact, giving up is evidence 
of not having great faith. The Bible in Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please him. In Romans 1, 17, the Bible says, the righteous man shall live, how? By faith. Fourthly, great faith is bold and humble at the same time. This woman was bold. She went to the house. She fought through the crowd and she let her request be made known. She wasn't afraid to ask Jesus for something bold and big and miraculous. But she was also humble. Because she was willing to accept the crumbs and not demand to sit at the table. And sometimes the problem for us is we're not willing to accept God's plan for eternity, for earth, for life, for us, for me. We don't want the crumbs. We want what the person who's sitting at the head of the table has. And and God sometimes says, my plan for you is this, not that. And so great faith can be bold in believing and asking and seeking, but humble in understanding and accepting and being submissive all at the same time. Great faith, filthily great faith, will seize the opportunities that each day presents. Jesus was in her town one day. Not the day before, not the day after. That one day. And great faith seizes the opportunities that actually come, that are actually presented. Not the ones we wish, but the ones that are. At the time, they actually show up. How many times have you looked back at your life and said, I wish I had taken advantage. I wish I had. When opportunities come, that's the only moment you have to seize that opportunity. That's it. But if you spend your whole life Wanting everything except the opportunities that are in front of you, you'll miss what God has for you. And by the way, Jesus talked a lot about faithfulness in the small things making it possible for God to bless you with the big things. If you can't seize what is in front of you, why would God trust you with something even greater? Faith, great faith seizes the opportunities that are presented when they're presented and doesn't waste its life wanting what someone else has or this or that but says this is the opportunity this is the day and I'm going to be faithful in this day and in this opportunity and Jesus said tomorrow's worries (laughs) uh, there's enough of them you just deal with today the Lord's prayer give us What? This day, our what? It's this.
this day's opportunity. Some, some of you, what, what's killing your faith is you can't see what's right in front of you. You, you won't do anything with what's right in front of you. Amen. You know what else great faith does? It worships Jesus, even while facing the great challenges. What did this woman do? <laughs> she went and fell at his feet. Not after the answer, <laughs> while she was still in the midst of the struggle. How, how faithful are you when your faith is facing the challenge? Great faith worships Jesus even when it's hard. Great faith, listen, great faith knows that Jesus already knows everything in our hearts. When Jesus was standing on that side of the room and the woman was on the other side of the room with the crowd between them and she yelled out, Son of David, have mercy, my daughter. Jesus already knew her heart. The Bible tells us Jesus knows what's in every human being's heart. He knew her faith. Why did he drag it out? Does Jesus know your heart, my heart? Absolutely. Well, one, he was going to teach the disciples a lesson that, hey, a Gentile, yeah, I know I'm ministering to the Jews, but I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, and you need to understand, some of them are doing a better job than you are believing in me. Some of the people who aren't part of your little, your little club, your little group, your little culture, whatever, have a lot more faith than you have. Don't you limit where God works and in whom God's working. He was teaching his disciples a lesson. But he was also helping her. And that's the next thing is great faith accepts the help of Jesus. He was helping her, not only teaching the disciples a lesson, but he was helping her by proving her faith. He knew what was in there. He was pulling it out of her as evidence to everybody around. Our appreciation of her great faith is greater because of how this encounter unfolded than it would have been if the first time she spoke Jesus had simply healed her daughter he was showing it he was proving it he was spotlighting he was developing it he was growing it he was showing it he was exposing it to everyone including herself What, what, what do you do when Jesus tries to work in your life to demonstrate the quality of your faith? What happens? What happens? And the last thing about great faith. Great faith understands that Jesus can work from a distance. 
Where was this little girl when Jesus healed her? She wasn't in the room with her mom and Christ. She was somewhere else. She was at home. Somebody else watching her. Can you pray for somebody in another state or another country and God work over there? You better believe it. Can you, can, can you be a prayer partner with someone and, and pray together over the telephone? You're not in the same, same place, same room. You're, you're in different buildings and you're praying together over the telephone. And, and, and can the Spirit of God work in both places? You better believe it. And so, Jesus, in that little bubble, so to speak, said, Oh, woman, you have great faith. I ask you again, if Jesus were to describe your faith, and we, and we, we wrote it in one of those conversation bubbles, what would it say? Do, do you know how you grow faith? You say, Pastor, I want my faith to be greater. How do you grow faith? You've got to do something with what you already have. How do you, how do you get your muscles stronger? You have to exercise them, right? If you're not willing to exercise the faith you already have, don't expect to ever have more faith. You, you've got to be willing to be faithful now, no matter what, irregardless of circumstances, if you want to be stronger through time as circumstances change. Faith grows as you act on faith and no other way. No other way. That's it. Acting on what faith you already have is how your faith grows. But if when you face the challenges, you shrink back, you react differently than she did, your faith will never grow beyond where it already is. In fact, your faith will probably shrink when you shrink back. So on that scale of 0 to 10 again, where is your faith? And where do you want it to be? And are you willing to start being faithful and acting on the faith you already have, doing the things that God's calling you to do? Is there a sin in your life that you need to repent of because it's hindering the development of your faith? Is there a habit you need to stop, you need to break, you need to throw away because it's defeating your faith? Is there a relationship you need to mend because your anger and animosity is keeping you where you are rather than allowing you to move forward with Christ? Let's stand and sing together.